Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Catholic Ken Apologetics Show on the Four Persons Network. This is our weekly Friday morning show with Catholic apologist Ken Litchfield. To call into the show today, the number is 515-602-9655. That number again is 515-602-9655. And now, let's welcome our host Ken Litchfield. Good morning, Four Persons Radio fans. This is the Catholic and Apologetic Show with me, your host, Ken Litchfield. We have a great show planned for you today. I will be continuing my discussion on salvation. If you have a question on this topic, feel free to call in at 515-602-9655. And if you'd like a copy of today's show notes, Email me at catholicken at thefourpersons.com. That's Catholic with a K. And the four persons is the, the number four, persons.com. To pick up where we left off last week, um, I talked about how I talked about the Jewish roots of salvation and how God had His chosen people from Adam and Eve to Noah to Abraham to Isaac to the Israelites and on and on. And as long as they stayed true to what God taught them, they had to do to live to be as His people. Things went well for them. But when they got away from God, they um, things went bad for them. So in the New Testament, it works the same way. God calls us to live a certain way, and we have to live as Jesus told us we have to live. In the Catholic Church, we recognize that salvation is a process that does begin with a one-time event. Catholic Christians and Protestant Christians both agree that Jesus' death on the cross provided sufficient grace for all of us to be saved. The difference is in how that grace is applied to us. Protestants teach that through faith or believing, they receive imputed righteousness and appear holy to God. The Catholic Church teaches that by grace, through faith and baptism, we receive intrinsic, which is actual righteousness, and are made holy before God so that we can do the works he has planned for us to do. And this is summed up in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Protestants teach that works play no part in your salvation, but can be a demonstration that you are saved. Martin Luther misunderstood what kind of works Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 3 and Galatians chapter 5. I'm sorry, and Galatians chapter 2. In both cases, Paul is speaking to the Jews that are insisting that new Gentile converts have to adopt the Jewish works of the law. 
in Acts chapter 15, the apostles made a ruling that Gentiles do not need have to be circumcised. They only need to abstain from foods sacrificed to idols. This was a binding decree on all Christians, but the Jewish Christians didn't always follow this. In the early 400s, Augustine confirmed that Paul was referring to the Jewish ceremonial and food works of the law in his writings in Romans and Galatians. In the early 1500s, Martin Luther developed his new salvation theology because he couldn't accept that his sins were forgiven through the sacrament of reconciliation. He found Bible verses that taught salvation by faith alone without the works of the law. The law referred to in these verses is the Jewish ceremonial law and the kosher laws. Luther taught that saved people are covered by Jesus' righteousness, like snow over a dunghill. In Luther's book, Bondage to the Will, he taught that when we are born, either God or the devil will take over our lives, and all we can do is submit to their will. Therefore, if God is controlling your life, the only way you can lose your salvation is to deny God. A generation later, John Calvin further developed Luther's new salvation theology. Calvin taught that since God is all-powerful and all-knowing, then he decides which people he creates are going to heaven and which are going to hell from the beginning of time. This means that God creates some people just to send them to hell, which goes against the Bible that teaches that God wants all men to be saved. And you'll find that in 2 Peter chapter 3 and 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Calvin taught that if you are one of God's elect, then no matter what you do, God will save you in the end. Calvin taught that all our punishment for sin was put on Jesus, so our sins are covered by Jesus' shed blood. Both of these new theologies teach that you can't lose your salvation through sin if you are in the group of saved people. This leads to the misunderstanding that salvation is a one-time event. It was difficult to really know which people were in the saved group. In the 1700s, during the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards went around preaching and urging people to have an emotional conversion experience, leading to a true Christian life. This was expanded by other conservative Protestant preachers in the revival preaching of the 1800s. People who had an emotional conversion experience and accepted Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior must be one of the elect and were guaranteed to go to heaven no matter what sins they committed later. This new theology was promoted in the 1900s by groups like the Azusa Street Revival and the Billy Graham Crusades that appealed to people to have a conversion experience and give their lives to Christ. These people are now known as the born-again Christians that teach once you are saved, you are always saved. Giving your life to Christ is a start, but not the end of the salvation process. And when you're reading the Bible, uh, and you'll find in, a lot in Paul's writings, 
where he talks about, you know, not being saved by works or works don't save you, things like that. When you understand Paul's audience at that time of the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, you understand that the works that Paul is talking about are the Jewish works of the law, and specifically the ceremonial and kosher laws. The moral law applied to the Jews before Christ and applies to us Christians today. And also, when you're reading the Bible, uh, you'll read about how about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, his shed blood, his taking his punishment. These are all different ways that refer to the crucifixion, which is where Jesus offered himself back to the Father as the infinite sacrifice to provide sufficient grace to save everybody. So let's go back to the beginning again. Adam and Eve were born with God's grace and free will to choose to love God. When they chose to disobey God, they were expelled from the garden. We are all children of Adam and Eve and are now born without God's grace. We inherit their fallen nature and therefore are prone to sin. This is what is referred to as original sin, but it is something missing. It is not something inherited. The Hebrews became God's chosen people through Abraham. When the Hebrews failed to live by God's plan, they were conquered by other nations and eventually ended up in Egypt. Through Moses, the Israelites were given the law, first through the Ten Commandments, the moral law, and then through the Levitical Code, which was about 613 laws. And this was even further developed into the kosher laws later on by the Pharisees. If the Israelites sinned, they had to do offer something back to God to be reconciled back to God. This is why the Jews would offer animals or some of their produce from their crops back to God at the temple. At the right time, God sent Jesus to bring the Jews back. But some have come there and refused to recognize Jesus as their Messiah. Jesus' sacrifice started at the Last Supper and finished on the cross is the final sacrifice that provides sufficient grace to save all people, Jew or Gentile. And you'll find that in Hebrews chapter 10. Encounter with Jesus, Paul writes about how we are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ unto the works he has set out for us to do, as written in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. We are not saved by following the Levitical code of the Jews or keeping the kosher laws. The early Christians were incorporated into the body of Christ through baptism. And we find that in Matthew chapter 28, John chapter 3, Acts chapter 2 and 9 and 22, 1 Peter chapter 3, and 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and chapter 6. The first Christians still had to follow the Ten Commandments and do the works of mercy specified by Jesus in Matthew chapter 25. They also had to avoid the sins listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and Galatians chapter 5. If they sinned, they would 
have to confess their sins and do the specified to them by the priest to restore their relationship with Jesus and his church. And we find the authority to forgive sins in John chapter 20, and James writes about it also in chapter 5. The early Christians understood that you grow in holiness through the grace made available to us through the sacraments. Like the thief on the cross, salvation can occur at a specific point in time when you are drawn by God's grace to faith in Jesus and be completed if you die at that point in time. This is the initial righteousness Paul talks about in Romans chapter 4, but not the perfected sanctification he talks about in Romans chapter 2. If the person lives beyond the point the time of initial salvation, there is more to be done. This is the personal relationship with Jesus develops over time. Jesus in Luke chapter 19, James chapter 2, and Paul in Romans chapter 4 and Galatians chapter 3 use Father Abraham as the example of faith. His story in Genesis takes place from chapter 12 to chapter 23. Abraham is required to do many things, and after each one, it is counted to him as righteousness. This shows that salvation is a process as you continue to live in faith with God. After initial salvation, we need to be baptized to enter into the covenant with God, as shown in Acts chapter 2. Children can enter into that same covenant if they have parents and godparents that promise to bring the child up in the faith. Through baptism, we are incorporated into the body of Christ, as shown in 1 Corinthians chapter. We are made holy by washing away all previous sin, as shown in Acts chapter 2 and 22. And we are given an initial source of grace to overcome the tendency to sin from Adam and Eve. The state of holiness is maintained through the sacrament of reconciliation, also known as confession, where, where mortal sins are forgiven and reconciled through penance. Venial sins are forgiven through contrition, prayer, Bible study, holy water. That's the reason we bless ourselves with water when we enter the church and leave the church and receiving the Eucharist. As we grow in understanding, we receive more sacraments like the Eucharist and the Sacrament of Confirmation, where Catholics choose to follow the faith and are strengthened through the Holy Spirit so we can continue to live holy lives and maintain our salvation. All the penance due to sin that was not reconciled before death is completed in purgatory before entering heaven because nothing unclean can enter there. And we find that in Revelation chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 12. Free will allows us to walk away from the body of Christ at any time and lose our salvation up until death. We can also turn back to God and at any time and be saved up until death. When we die, our the state of our soul is basically frozen and it will not change you can't go from unsaved 
to being saved after death. At the point of death, you are either saved or you're not saved. This is demonstrated in the, port of, in the story of the prodigal son. In Luke chapter 15, we have the story of the prodigal son who takes his inheritance, his salvation, and goes off to, to a far land and lives a sinful life, spending his inheritance, losing his salvation. When he repents and returns to his father, his father welcomes him back with a party, restoring his salvation. The Catholic Church teaches that works are part of the salvation process, which, when done while in a state of grace, are done for the glory of God. We can merit more grace for works done while members of the body of Christ, because we are following God's plan for us, and we will not lose our reward, as shown in Matthew chapter 10. The works we, that we must do are in Matthew's chapter 6, 11, and 25, Mark chapter 16, Luke chapters 6 and 15, and John chapters 14 and 17. Jesus says we will be judged by our works at the final judgment in Matthew chapter 25, and those without works will be turned away because he never knew them, and you'll find that in Matthew chapter 7. Faith is a process, and our salvation is an ongoing state that is maintained as we keep ourselves in a state and therefore a part of the body of Christ. Our goal is to be to conform, conform our lives to the life of Christ and to grow Many of our Protestant brothers and sisters claim that we are saved by believing alone. You won't find any verses that lead me, but not the end. There are any verses in the Bible that say by believing or faith because the Catholic Church decided that they are part of the inspired word of God, given by the apostles to bring people to Christ. There are also many verses that teach that what we must do after our initial salvation. The Catholic Church uses the whole Bible, not just the verses that support a personal theology. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, is a condensed version of the Catholic understanding of salvation through grace, faith, and works. James chapter 2 tells us that believing and faith are not enough to save a person. Works are required as well. Romans chapter 2 tells us that it is not the hearers of the law that will be saved, doers of the law that will be saved. The early Christians were required to do more than just believe. Teaching of the Twelve Apostles, Christians to live morally and to do works of mercy that Jesus said they had to do. The Catholic Church does not teach that belief is unnecessary. In fact, if you come to believe in Jesus and get killed right away, the Catholic Church teaches that you are saved. 
The Catholic Church teaches that faith is a process. Father Abraham is the example of faith used by Jesus in John chapter 8 and by James in chapter 2 and Paul in chapter 4. takes place in Genesis chapters 12 through 23, which shows is a process, not a one percent. Abraham had leaved the land of earth, himself, all the men of in his tribe, offer his son as a sacrifice, and give ten percent of the spoils of battle to the priest king Melchizedek. After each event in the story of Abraham, God declares him righteous. This shows that faith begins at one point and matures over time. In the Catholic Church, we start with coming to a belief that Jesus died for our sins and was resurrected. After learning about the faith or receiving a promise from our parents to raise us in the faith, we can be baptized. After learning more about the faith, we are allowed to receive the Eucharist, presence of Jesus, under the appearance of bread and wine. After coming to a mature understanding receive the sacrament of confirmation, where we are sealed by the Holy Spirit and choose to follow in the faith tradition that we have been raised in. We are inspired to believe through God's grace. Then come to a mature understanding of the faith in Jesus Christ, which equips us to do the works that God has set out for us. And again, you'll find that in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10. Protestants love to quote verses 8 and 9 that talk about being saved by God's grace and faith, but they like to skip over verse 10 because that's the part that says we have to do works, or at least that God has works for us to do. Some people think that if you do more good than bad, God will let you into heaven. If a person learns the whole truth of the Bible, he will come to understand that you have to believe in the salvation offered by Jesus alone and that you have to grow in holiness because nothing unholy will enter heaven, as shown in Revelation chapter 21. The Catholic Church offers a way to grow in holiness. Protestant faith traditions offer the free salvation won for us by Jesus. They generally fail to teach that you have to grow in holiness because you are either predestined for heaven, as taught by John Calvin, or you can only lose your salvation by denying Christ, as taught by Martin Luther. Jesus taught that we had to keep the Ten Commandments. You'll find that in Matthew chapter 16 and Luke 18. And avoid the sins Paul lists in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and Galatians chapter 5 to have eternal life. Jesus also requires us to do the works of mercy laid out for us in the Bible. Failure to do the works of mercy that are given to us in Matthew chapter 5 will keep you out of heaven as shown in Matthew chapter 7 and 25. Teaching salvation by faith alone without works afterward is risky business. 
The works that we do after our initial salvation and baptism are Jesus' works done by us as members of the body of Christ in the real world. And that's why the Catholic Church teaches that we are saved both by faith and works. And this is backed up James chapter 2. Now, this is some Bible verses that uh, show us that Jesus teaches that we can lose our salvation. Matthew chapter 7, verse 18, Jesus says that sound trees bear good fruit, but there is no guarantee that a sound tree will stay around. It could go rotten. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 tells us, all those who say, Lord, Lord, on the last day will not be saved. They are judged by their deeds, whether good or evil. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 30 to 32, Jesus says that he who is not with him is against him. Therefore, and the Greek therefore is diatutos, which means through this, so let's put that into context here. Jesus says that he who is not with him is against him. Through this, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. This means that failing to persevere in Jesus' grace to the end is the unforgivable sin against the Spirit. We must persevere in faith to the end of our lives to be saved. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 18, Jesus says, Many are called, but few are chosen. This man who was destined to grace was at God's banquet, but he was cast out. And that's the story about the wedding supper. In Luke chapter 8, verses 13, Jesus teaches that some people receive the word with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a while, and then they fall away into, from temptation. They fall away into sin. They had faith initially, but they lost it. After 12, verses 42 through 46, we find we can start out as faithful and wise stewards, then fall away and be assigned to a place with the unfaithful. In Luke chapter 15, verse 11 to 32, in the parable of the prodigal son, we learn that we can be genuine sons of the father, then leave home and die, and then return and describe as live again. So there's a difference between bodily life and spiritual life. And you, your body can still be alive, but you can be spiritually dead and not connected to Jesus. But your spiritual life restored through confession and reconnection to the body of Christ. So Paul writes about being dead in sin. That doesn't mean those people are bodily dead, but spiritually. They are spiritually dead because they are sinners and not following what Jesus calls us to do.
In John chapter 6, verses 70 to 71, Jesus chose or elected 12, yet one of them, Judas, fell. Not all those predestined to grace persevere until the end. So Jesus told, chose Judas, but Judas chose to walk away from Christ. This is a great example of us having free will and being able to give away our salvation. In John chapter 15, verses 1 through 10, we can, we can be in Jesus like a branch on the vine, and then if we don't bear fruit, we are cut off, wither up, and die. Paul makes this absolutely clear in Romans chapter 11, 20 through 23. Any branches that don't bear fruit are cut off. So if you are connected to Jesus, you have to do the works and bear fruit. Otherwise, you'll be cut off. Paul also writes in Romans about how the Jews that rejected Jesus can be grafted back into Jesus if they come to believe in him. In John chapter 17, verse 12, we can be given to Jesus by the Father, predestined by grace for heaven, stay with Jesus, just like Judas did. So that's a verse that Protestants often point to that supposedly proves that uh, God chooses some people and gives them to Jesus and nobody can snatch them from Jesus' hand. But we have to think about this as being in the palm of Jesus' hand, and we can step off of Jesus' palm and into sin if we choose. God loves us enough to let us to, to choose to not to love him. Because true love requires a free will choice. In John chapter 6, verse 37, we learn that those who continue to come to Jesus, he won't cast them out. But it's a continuous, ongoing action. We can leave Jesus, and he will allow this because he respects our free will. And both John Calvin and Martin Luther denied that we have free will. But as I said just a little bit ago, true love requires a free will choice to choose to continue in the love that God offers us. In John chapter 6, verse 39, we learn Jesus will not lose those that the Father gives him, but we can fall away just like Judas did. God allows us not to persevere. In John chapter 6, verse 40, we learn everyone who sees the Son and believes means the person continues, and this word believes means the, that the person continues to believe. By continuing to believe, the person will persevere and will be raised up. Belief also includes obedience, which is more than an initial intellectual belief in God. Just because you came to believe in Jesus 
doesn't mean that you're all done then. Once you believe in Jesus, you are now obligated to do what Jesus calls us to do. In John chapter 6, verse 44, we learn that Jesus says, No one can come to him unless the Father draws him. This drawing is an ongoing process. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we learn that God wants all men to be saved. So God is always freely offering his grace and calling us back to him. But we have to choose to come to God. In John chapter 10, verses 27 to 28, Jesus says, No one shall snatch them out of my hand. He does not mean leave his hands. We can choose to walk away from him at any time. And we can also choose to turn back to God. God is like the, the father in the story of the prodigal son. He's always willing to welcome us back but we do have to choose to come back. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, we learn that Jesus tells the Ephesians that they abandoned the love they had at first and have fallen. Jesus warns them to repent and do the works they did at first. Otherwise, he will, be, he will remove the lampstand, their awaited place in heaven. In Revelation chapter two, 3, verse 4, in Sardis, Jesus explained through his messenger that some people received the white garment and soiled it with sin. So we receive our white garment at baptism. However, we can get our white garment dirty through sin. In Revelation 3, chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus says, Whoever conquers will not be blotted out of the book of life. And we find the book of life initially mentioned in Exodus 32, verse 33. This means that we can be blotted out of the book of life. We can have salvation and then lose that salvation by our choice. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 11, Jesus says to hold fast to what we have so that no one may seize our crown. Jesus teaches us that we can have the crown of salvation and lose it. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 10 and 12, we are called from heaven for the endurance and faith of the saints, keeping the commandments and faith. Also in the book of Revelation chapter 21 verse 7, we must conquer in order to share in our inheritance and become a true son of Jesus. Revelation chapter 2 reminds us we can have a share in the tree of life in God's holy city and yet have that shape, that share taken away from us. So now here's some verses that show that we are not guaranteed salvation, but we have a hope for salvation. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, 
Hebrews chapter chapter 9 and verse 26, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, and 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, all tell us that Jesus died once and redeemed us all. We participate in the application of his redemption by the way in which we live. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, Christ's sacrifice secured our redemption, but redemption is not the same thing as salvation. We participate in and hope for salvation. Our hope in salvation is a guarantee if we are faithful to Christ to the end. But if we lose hope, and fail to persevere, we can lose our salvation. Choosing, not God's choosing, salvation can be lost. Knowing this, we know that salvation is not a certainty. While many Protestant churches believe in the theology of once saved, always saved, such a novel theory is not found in Scripture and has never been taught by the Catholic Church. In Romans chapter 5, we find it saying, We rejoice in the hope, not the presumptuous certainty, of sharing the glory of God. If salvation is absolutely assured after accepting Jesus as their Savior, why would Paul need to hope? is not a guarantee. Hope is a desire that a condition may continue. In Romans chapter 5, verse 5, we learn that this hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Our hope is assured if we persevere until the end. In Romans chapter 8, verse 24, we find that this hope of salvation that Paul writes about is unnecessary if salvation is guaranteed. If salvation is assured, then why hope? In Romans chapter 10, verse 1, Paul prays that the Jews may be saved. But why is Paul praying if it is not guaranteed? Furthermore, why pray unless you can mediate? So that's a real good one as to um, we members of the body of Christ serving as an extension of Jesus by praying for others so that they can come to know Christ and be saved. In Romans chapter 12, verse 12, we find it saying, Rejoice in your hope, not your certainty. Be patient in tribulation and be constant in prayer. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12, since we have a hope, not a certainty again, we are very bold. We can be bold when 
we are in God's grace and are persevering and we are persevering in obedient faith. In Galatians chapter 5 verse 5 we learn for through the spirit by faith we wait for the hope not certainty of righteousness. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 18 we find that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance? There's nothing more important than having eternal life in heaven. And there's nothing here on earth worth giving up to lose that hope of eternal life in heaven. But still, some people are tempted to give it up. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, we find it saying, There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope, not the certainty, that belongs to your call. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 17, Paul instructs the Ephesians to take the whole armor of God, the breastplate of righteousness, and the helmet of salvation in order to stand lest they fall. Paul does not give any assurance that the spiritual battle is already won. If we don't need to put on the armor and breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation, that means there is no battle for us to lose our salvation. But Paul makes it clear here that we have to continually fight for our salvation by continually living a holy life despite all the temptations of the world to sin. Philippians chapter 3 verse 11, Paul shares Christ's suffering so that it is possible he may attain resurrection. Paul does not view his own resurrection as a certainty. So Paul is reminding us that we have to suffer with Christ sometimes and through that suffering we can combine our Christ our suffering with Christ's suffering for the sake of the church and Therefore, we may attain the resurrection and go to heaven. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, we find it saying, As it is my eager ex expectation and hope, again, not certainty, that I shall not be at all ashamed before Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 5 also reminds us Paul referred to the hope not guarantee that Christ laid up for us in heaven collections chapter 1 verse 23 lets us know that provided that you continue in the faith not shifting from the hope of the gospel which you heard so there in Colossians chapter 1 Paul is urging them to continue in the faith. 
and not just give it up, perhaps for some worldly goods or some food or something like that. In Colossians chapter 23, we find provided that you continue in faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, which you heard. Let's see. Okay. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul tells them, to them God chose to make known his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope, not the certainty, of his glory. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, he writes, Remembering before our God your work of faith and the labor of love and steadfastness of hope in Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 19, Paul writes, For what is our hope or joy, crown of boasting, before our Lord at his coming. It is not you. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, Paul writes, We must put on the helmet of hope, not of certainty of salvation. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul writes, The Lord Jesus and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope, through grace. Again, Paul is teaching that we have hope through God, but not a guarantee. We have hope to persevere until the end. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, Paul describes Christ as our hope, not our guarantee. We can reject Christ, and he will allow us to do this, because God loves us enough to let us choose to love him back. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, Paul tells us that we, let's see, Paul tells us that we toil and strive because we have our hope, not our assurance on the living God. This is not because God is unfaithful, but because we can be unfaithful. We toil and strive for our salvation. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 5, tells us that she is a real widow and is left all alone. And she has set her hope, again, not her assurance, on God. Our hope is, in a, guarantee, is a guarantee only if we persevere until the end. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 15, Paul writes that some have already strayed after Satan, as God himself tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. They were on the right path and then strayed off of it. And you can be on the right path right now, but you don't know until you die that you will continue to be on that same path. There are many, many other verses in the Bible that tell us that we can have hope in our salvation, but it is not a guarantee that we will have salvation and persevere in the faith until the end. So the, there are different interpretations of what's written in the Bible, 
and the way we can understand what the correct interpretation is is like how did the uh, earliest Christians interpret the Bible before the Catholic Church assembled the Bible and we learned about this through the church fathers they are the first people that wrote theology about the Bible before there was a Bible And one of the early church fathers is Barnabas, and he wrote between 70 and 130 A.D. And he wrote, We ought, therefore, brethren, carefully to inquire concerning our salvation. Otherwise, the wicked one, having made his entrance by deceit, may hurl us forth from life. So Barnabas knew how people got saved, but he's warning them that the wicked one, the devil, can enter into our life through deceit, just like the serpent entered into the life of Adam and Eve. And then we can lose our salvation by following the wicked one. The shepherd of Hermas wrote in the first century also, and he writes, For the Lord has sworn by his glory in regard to his elect, that if any one of them sin after a certain day, which has been fixed, he will not be saved. For the repentance of the righteousness has limits. Filled up are the days of repentance to all the saints. But to the unbeliever, repentance will be possible even to the last day. For the Lord has sworn by his Son that those who denied their Lord have abandoned their life to despair. So Hermas is writing about how even an unbeliever has up until the last day, the moment of death, to turn to Jesus. And he also writes about how those that came to Jesus can deny their Lord and lose their life. Justin Martyr writes around 155 AD, I hold further that those of you who have confessed and known this man to be Christ, yet who have gone back for some reason to the legal dispensation, which is the Mosaic Law, and have denied that this man is Christ, and have not repented before death, you will by no means be saved. So Justin Martyr's writing about how people come to believe in Jesus, but then they go back to the Mosaic Law of the ceremonial and kosher law, and then they deny Christ by doing that. And again, he tells them that if you don't repent before death, you will not be saved. Irenaeus writes around 180 AD, those who do not obey him being disinherited by him, have ceased to be his sons. So Irenaeus is telling us that we come to believe in Jesus, but if we don't believe and obey him, we will be disinherited and cease to be a son of the Father and therefore lose our salvation. Another early Christian writer, Tertullian, wrote around 213 A.D., God has foreseen that faith, even after baptism, 
would be endangered. He saw that most persons, after obtaining salvation, would be lost again by soiling their wedding dress by failing to provide oil for the torches. So those are Bible references where it talks about how a man, you know, wears his wedding clothes to the wedding, but they are soiled with sin. And also like the 12 virgins that were awaiting the coming of the bridegroom and six of them had extra oil and six of them didn't. And because they didn't plan for the future, those bridesmaids were shut out of the wedding feast because they had to go try and, try and find oil for their lamps. Origen writes around 225 AD, certain ones of those, the heretics, who hold different opinions, misuse these passages. They essentially destroy free will by introducing ruined natures incapable of salvation and by introducing others as being saved in such a way that they cannot be lost. So here, Tertullian, I mean, I'm sorry, Origen is writing about how it was an early Christian heresy that you can be saved and not lose your salvation. This is not something that the Catholic Church was teaching at the time and was not a, but there were heretics thinking that once you are saved, you can't lose your salvation. And this was reinvented invented again in the 1800s by Martin Luther and John Calvin. Another early Christian writer, Commodianus, writes around 240 AD, being a believing man, if you seek to live as the Gentiles do, the joys of the world remove you from the grace of Christ. So he's telling us here that just because you believe in God, but if you live as the Gentiles do, which would be the unsaved Gentiles, the joys of the world can remove you from the grace of Christ. Obviously, he's teaching that you can lose your salvation. Another early church writer, Cyprian, wrote around 250 AD, and he writes, Let us press onward and labor, watching with our whole heart. Let us be steadfast with all endurance. Let us keep the Lord's commandments. Thereby, when that day of anger and vengeance comes, we may not be punished with the ungodly and the sinners. Rather, we may be honored with the righteous and those that, who fear God. So he's telling us that we have to keep the commandments, which is what the Catholic Church has taught from the beginning. Some Protestants will tell you that it doesn't matter if you keep the commandments or not, because Jesus already did everything for our salvation. There's an early Christian writing called the Treatise on Rebaptism that was written around 257 AD. And it says, as to the one who again denies Christ, no special previous standing can be effective to him for salvation. 
or any one of us will hold it necessary that whatever is the last thing to be found in a man in this respect, that is where he will be judged. All those that he has previously done are wiped away and obliterated. So from this, we are learning that it doesn't matter what you did initially and in the past, but the last thing that is found in a man is how we will be judged. So like we can be saved, we can lose our salvation and die as a lost Christian, or we can turn back to Christ and become saved again. But when we die, that's how we will be judged. Another early Christian writing writer is Victorinus. And he writes, he will put a seal upon him. And we get that through baptism. Or it is concealed as to who belongs to the side of the devil and who to the side of Christ. For we do not know out of those who seem to stand whether they will fall or not. And of those who are down, it is uncertain whether they might rise. So again, this is an early Christian writer teaching that we can be on the side of Christ, side of Christ and fall away, and those that have fallen away can be restored. There's a whole lot more, and if you would like all of these notes, you can send me an email at catholicken at thefourpersons.com, and that's catholicken with a K, and the four persons is the, for the number four, persons.com. And you can look me up on Facebook also, and we can connect there, and I'll get you all these show notes. There's a whole lot of material that I didn't get to, but I want to make it available to you so that you too can help others come to the truth of the Catholic faith. May God bless and guide your efforts to bring the truth of the Catholic faith to the whole world. And remember, always be prepared to offer an explanation for the hope that is within you. Persevere until the end, and we can be saved. May God bless and guide your efforts. Thanks for tuning in today, and I look forward to being with you again next week. Bye for now.